Good morning, Redemption. Good to see everyone here. You ready? Romans 9, brace yourself. Here we go. <laughs> we, ha- we have a Romans 9 fan. That's awesome. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. I told you last week, kind of as a precursor, heads up, that uh, we are dealing with a, uh, uh, some would say a little challenging, uh, controversial. Um, James Boyce called it the most difficult passage in the, in the entire Bible. Uh, he said it was even more difficult than Revelation or Daniel or Ezekiel prophetic pieces. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he said. One, one uh, guy I read said this, is a, this passage is like a hedgehog with a lot of prickles. So um, if that helps you, there you go. Um, that's why last week I told you that there's a lot of pastors and churches that will just skip this section. I, I had a friend, um, this was many years ago, we were talking about what makes you you, you know, when you're talking about the essence of your convictions, your faith. You know, you're talking about foundational pieces. We were talking about some of the things we're going to hit on today, and, and this guy told me, well, I believe it too, but I'd never preach it. <laughs> I'd never tell anybody, and I, I don't have a file for that, but that's certainly, I think, fairly popular in our culture because what we're going dis- to, to look at today is a, is a discussion from Paul about God's election of the saints, specifically how God foreloves a people to save um, and to some of you, uh, you've heard this before, and so you're all ready for this. You probably would cheer, and that's good. To some of you, you've heard it before, and you're not ready to cheer. Uh, one, of my, one of my biggest distractions is if you get up in the middle of Rome 9 and walk out, I'm going to go, oh my gosh, don't come back. Um, and then maybe some of you never heard it before. So this is, this, and I, I promise you, this is like one of the warnings I'll give you. It's going to be like drinking out of a fire hose this morning. So uh, you need to prepare yourself for that. So I wrote down what I thought would be helpful disclaimers. We're going to talk about rules of the road as we go through the next couple of weeks, because I think we need them. Uh, one, one is to kind of get our perspective. Um, this is a difficult passage. And it's difficult for some more than others, but it's clearly difficult. We only have 35 minutes, God willing, um, to deal with this. We don't have hours. You're going to see by just the natural reading of the text that there is a thousand bunny trails to what we're studying today, but we're not taking them, okay? This is also another disclaimer. We, this is not a systematic discussion. In other words, we're not talking about the doctrines of grace here. So if, if you've been around Redemption East Valley Bible Church for years and you're used to hearing these things come up in the context of a systematic theology, uh, a doctrines of grace discussion, we're not doing that. We are sticking to Romans 9, okay? So uh, just be prepared for that. That doesn't mean we don't believe them. It just means that we're studying Romans 9. The other thing, just as a disclaimer, there is mystery to God. And there is, there is if, if anyone tells you that they, by a paragraph, a message, or a page, can define, hem in, and box up God, run, because they can't. God spills over every edge. And there's no way for us at any moment of time, specifically 35 minutes, in one particular 13 verses of Romans 9, can unpack God for you. But we are getting into some, some deep waters here. So, last, last disclaimer, one request I have of you, hang in. What I mean by that is this. If you've been around for Romans, you've gone through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. The wonderful uphill climb to the pinnacle thing we talked about a couple weeks that nothing can separate from the love of God. Great, great story that God's grace cannot be earned, therefore it cannot be lost, no matter how big of a knucklehead we are, okay? That's good news, okay? Well, Paul's still thinking about the good news. And the good news that he brings into this discussion now is God's election of the saints. Okay, 
So I want you to hang in there. We will be back to this text next week for another week. And then um, because I think it's going to present some questions, we have asked the elders last week if we could put together a Q&A, just an open forum. So on April 14th, if you want to um, mark this down, on April 14th in the commons at 7 p.m., y'all come, you know. And now, obviously, by being in the commons, you can assume how many people I think will come. But um, you're invited to uh, ask questions, not debate, ask questions. There's a big difference, okay? So welcome to come to that April 14th. So you ready? Let's, uh, just for context sake, let's back up to Romans chapter 8, pick it up in verse 35 to prove why Romans 9 is needed. Paul, again, this is the pinnacle. This is the peak of what he's been saying about God's gospel. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now skip down to 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. That is the biggest high you've ever heard. Romans is a wonderful discussion, but the realities of Christ in us, the realities of the gospel and grace given freely by faith, that truth now anchors in this wonderful promise that you can't mess it up. You can't experience anything. You can't go through anything. You can't fail in anything. You can have anything on the outside push against you to such a degree that somehow God's faithful promise to you, the gospel to transform you and and to give you a hope for tomorrow, nothing can separate you from that. Amen? Nothing. And in the middle of that pinnacle thought, there's this lurking question. Oh, yeah? Really? What about Israel, Paul? I mean, God made a bunch of promises before I read this, and he made it to the people of Israel. And from what I can tell about how people, uh, the, the people of Israel have responded to this thing, they have kind of, uh, they've received all the blessing, all the good things of God, but they've kind of wandered off. They don't have very much interest. In fact, they're kind of, they're kind of uh, turned away from him. So if God's promise fails Israel, now you get the correlation here, can I trust that this promise is good? Make sense? If somehow God is a promise maker, well, then he better be faithful to all his promises. Otherwise, I don't know if I have any hope from end of Romans 8. Make sense? So that's where chapter 9 comes in. It's simply Paul's proof that God can be trusted and that God does whatever he wants and whatever he wants will happen. So just get your little arms around that. Uh, Let's pick it up in Romans 6 and we'll go through verse 18, Romans 9. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because there is an offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's word, so let's, uh, let's pray for his, uh, his discernment. God, we confess um, our limitations. There's no way to plumb you, the depths of you. There are natural resistance in us. There are fleshly resistance to the truth in us. And so we pray right now for um, your Holy Spirit to take over this moment, to open these scriptures to our minds and to our hearts. God, we would see them, perceive them, and believe them, I pray. God, I pray you'd give us patience as your, your Spirit does the work to transform. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you read this passage before? Quite a few of you. Now, I'm going to make a confession, and maybe it's your experience too, maybe not. Don't, don't, I'm not comparing and contrasting, but I don't find this passage particularly difficult if you just read it. Now, I do find it hard to accept, <laughs> but necessarily difficult to what it says. It's, it's just it's pretty straightforward, it, but it does have its challenges, right? But remember what I told you last week. We have one obligation when we come to the Word of God. It is to, it is to understand, believe, and do what God says, not to make it say or do what we want, right? We are completely dependent on God in this thing. So um, that's what we ask for. But Paul is right now making a, as clear a presentation for the doctrine of election as anywhere in Scripture. But nonetheless, it doesn't stop people from trying to argue against it, does it? Uh, for years um, now, I've experienced people who uh, just drive around this section. Whenever they get to places like this, one of the ways they just try to pretend that it's not theirs, cover their eyes, and go to a happy place, okay? And that's how some people r respond to things like this doctrine that we're in right now. Some people have come to this uh, particular section of Scripture, and it's easy for them. They just write it off and say, well, now, Paul's not talking about individuals he's saving. He's talking about a people. He's talking about Israel. And I'm cool with that. God can save Israel. He can have a favorite country. I don't care. But he's not talking about how he saves individuals, and so no harm, no foul. Some would come to this section on God's predestination and election and, and, and use words like foreknowledge and, and define it this way, that God somehow looks down the quarters of time and he sees all the people, all the masses of people in, in human history who would buy assent or affections or sincerity or decisions or wisdom or whatever, they wrap their arms around God and say, God says, okay, I choose you too, which by the way puts man in a sovereign position, not God, but that's another problem um, for another day. But I don't believe that's what the scripture says. I don't believe it's what it says here. This is as clear and as powerful a description of God's complete and total, absolute sovereign control of who he saves. Okay? That's what we got to get our mind around right now. And there's 13 verses. It's all we're going to deal with today. And, and we can't afford bunny trails because I've got a lot to say. So it's going to feel like a fire hose moment. Brace yourself. Okay, let's pick up verse 6. Um, Again, remember the question, can we trust God's promises? Here's Paul's answer. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In, in other words, God's promise wasn't genetic. 
It was spiritual. And that's Paul's point here. You're, you're bringing up my people, and my people have wandered. My people have walked off, and I suppose if you look at the totality of responses from Israel, you might conclude that somehow God isn't delivering on them, but you, you're thinking about it all wrong. God's promise was never to the bloodline. It was to the spiritual people, of which Abraham happens to be the father of both. He's not only the father of Israel, he's the father of faith. And so Paul simply says, God's not dropped the ball. He's faithful to it. He's redeeming and he's keeping all his promises to his chosen people, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. He's kept his word there. So I think it's worth stopping for a second and imagining for a minute if, if I had Paul on speed dial and say, hey, brother Paul, I need a word, okay? Paul, come, come say something to our church. I think Paul could come up here and stand behind this pulpit and say, not all people who call themselves Christians are Christians. Not all people who walk into a church or serve in a Sunday school class or make some kind of confession or somewhere down the past in their life had some confirmation or take communion or are sincere or understand or read these things and not argue. That doesn't make you a Christian. This truth about a spiritual line that God authors in people is the only way God has ever dealt with sinners. You need a covering. And the only claim anybody, anybody ever has had is to say their need is so great that Jesus becomes the solution and the covering for our sin. That's what makes a Christian, amen? That's it. But I guess it's worth a stop for a second for us to just do an assessment of our own life. Maybe you'll leave here today and you'll keep asking those questions, which is a great question to ask, by the way. Are you legitimate? Because not all Christians are Christians, just like not all Israel is Israel. In fact, Jesus said this, remember in, in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because someday there's going to be people who do miracles, who look legit, who preach in my name, who say certain things, who are really prominent people, who look like they got spiritual stuff all over them, but Jesus doesn't know them. There's only one thing we have our hope in. It's not what we do. It's what Christ has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's continue in Paul's thought here on sovereignty and election. Paul says God's kept his word because his promises was to a faith people, not a, not a blood people. And he uses three examples here to help prove his point. The examples are familiar to us, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? He barely mentions Abraham, and I think that's, that makes sense, uh, probably because the example of Abraham was so obvious. It didn't need any expounding on. Of course God picked Abraham. Every relationship of man is connected to God by Abraham, that whole father of faith, father of, of a people. He chose Abraham. But if you remember Abraham and where God found him, he was a pagan worshiper. He worshiped idols. He had no knowledge of God whatsoever. He was not seeking God. And in Genesis chapter 12, God was seeking him. In Genesis 15, there's this wonderful blood covenant that God has with Abraham. You remember the story. I've told you this so many times. It should be ringing in your ears, but this is when God tells Abraham, you go get some heifers and some goats and some pigeons and some doves and cut them in half. And what they would do, this was kind of like their paper contract in the day. They would cut these animals in half and separate the pieces with, with the blood and the gore between them. And the two parties agreeing on something would pass between the pieces. And basically that was a visible sentence that said, I'll die like this if I don't keep my end of the deal. My guess is Abraham maybe thought, well, this is great. God and I in a covenant. It's perfect. 
And then the Bible tells us that God caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. He's out cold. And God himself takes up the presence of a fire smoke and passes between the pieces himself, saying out loud, I'm keeping this promise to myself. Abraham, you had nothing to do with it. This, this father of faith wasn't even there. God says, I'm going to save myself a people who have nothing to do with it whatsoever. So just kind of lurking around this illustration of Abraham, people would have maybe seen that and, and remembered how God just went after Abraham and made this promise to Abraham apart from any works on his own. So here's a second illustration he uses. It's Isaac. Let's read 7 through 9 again just to catch up on it. Um, He says this, Not all children of Abraham, not are all children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, some could take the illustration of Abraham and kind of write it off and say, well, God's, God's really talking about Israel here. He's not talking about individual um, election or salvation. But Paul's example here, when he brings up Isaac, gets way more to the point because he talks about two different children, two phrases to describe them. Do you see that in verse, verse 8? Children of the flesh, he says, and then he says, children of the promise. Isaac, you know, is the child of, of promise. Abraham also had another son 13 years earlier, Ishmael. And Ishmael is considered the child of, of the flesh. And so here's Paul's point about these two kids. Ishmael and Isaac, will, although bo- both were Abraham's kids, God only selected who? Isaac. And it's interesting that the spiritual kind of illustrations get deeper with these two, and we've got to unpack this a little bit. There's, there's something else powerful here. Ishmael was born by man's power. You get my point? So remember, God made this promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. Well, he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Nothing's happening. Sarah has this brainstorm. Hey, Abraham, you go take my servant girl, Hagar, and you sleep with her and we'll have a child with her and maybe we can kind of conjure this promise up ourselves. Ishmael was that child. Ishmael was the In essence, let me give you an an analogy to think about it. Ishmael was the work man could do apart from God. That's what man could do. Man could produce Ishmael, but here's what Paul tells us about Ishmael. He was rejected by God. He was not God's choice. He was not God's man at all. That people was totally rejected. God's choice was Isaac. And guess how God delivers on his choice? He does it through miracles. Isaac now, here's 13 years after Ishmael, they're still, I don't know if Abraham and Sarah had kind of moved on from God doing something or just assumed that God would do it through Ishmael. Nevertheless, God reminds Abraham that he's still going to deliver on his promise. And Abraham laughs about it. Man, I'm 100 years old. And Sarah's 90. This is not going to happen. It's not possible. We're not having children. And yet Sarah gets pregnant. And the child they have is Isaac. So you're putting things together, I hope, in your own mind. Isaac just simply represents God's supernatural way to redeem. God has to do it. So so, so in other words, if you get the analogy, it's the same thing for our spiritual conception in our new birth. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, and hopefully you're familiar with this, that we, natural man, are dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead. Just Just like Sarah's womb. 
incapable of producing life. Undead, unresponsive to God. I mean, you could put God right in front of us. We're not going to perceive it. We're not going to want it. We're not going to need it. We're not going to see any of God in it because we are blind and dead and unresponsive. You understand? Just like Sarah, incapable of producing life. For us to become spiritually alive, God has to do the miracle of birth. In our case, rebirth. Amen? Do you get the point here? Okay, one, one more illustration. And it's the illustration that Paul brings up of, of Jacob in verses 10 through verse 13, that God chooses whoever he wants. He's getting more intense here. So let's pick it up in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. I want to suggest to you, this is not just another example by Paul, this is the winning argument. <laughs> Um, everything about this illustration proves his point to the T. Um, here, here's what I mean by that. Some of Paul's listeners, again, could have written off Abraham as, well, God was choosing a people. Some could have taken Isaac and written him off and said, well, that's the only true-blooded son, right? So, so Ishmael was a half-breed, so I understand that God's just going with the, the true line here. So no problem so far. But what Paul shares here is kind of a bulletproof example of what he's saying, that God chooses whomever he wants to give mercy to. And here's the proof. You remember that Jacob and Esau were twins, twins uh, of Isaac and Rebekah. In other words, that means they were true-blooded Jews, Hebrews of Hebrews. Nobody could accuse them of the ancestry problem of Ishmael. So that argument goes away. Second thing you got to notice here is that the choice of, of Jacob went against the cultural norms of, of the blessing and inheritance going to the firstborn because Esau was first. Although just moments before, the whole promise, the whole way the culture worked was that Esau was going to be the man. And for God to choose Jacob went right around the natural birth order of things. It would make no sense. So as much as we want to wiggle around God's choice, Paul is kind of uh, making it clear that apart from any rights or any standards or traditions, God chooses who he wants. And the third thing you need to see about this illustration, and this is really, really important, that God made his choice before either of the sons were born or had done anything right or wrong. Okay, we, we are picking up the pace on proof on this thing, that God chooses who he wants. And, and so here, here's Paul's point before I illustrate it. God's election of a person has absolutely nothing to do with what a person does. Doesn't matter about your birthright, what you know, where you've been. Doesn't matter what's fair or the standards. It matters what God chooses. In fact, in fact, Paul tells us in verse 11 why. It's very simple. You, know, you might not like the answer, but it's the answer he gives us nonetheless. Look at it, verse 11. He says in the middle, um, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's all he says about why. God has a plan in his election. He has a plan to uh, do a work. He has a plan that, that uh, outside of human effort, outside of righteousness, self-righteousness, outside of good works, God is going to choose for himself a people. Now, there's one other observation, just a side note about this, this uh, Jacob and Esau thing. Of the two boys, 
I would pick Esau. Jacob was a conniving, sneaky little deceiver. That's what Jacob was. If God was simply going to go on looking down the portals of time and picking the best guy, he would have picked Esau, the hunter, a man's man. He wasn't deceiving anybody. Jacob was kind of working all the angles to make it work out in his favor, and yet God chose who? Jacob. Okay, that's, that's what I would call the positive side of election. Nobody that I've ever met resists this. God, give me your favor. <laughs> Nobody I know wouldn't take from God. Yes, God, give me the blessing. Give me the love. Give me the relationship. This other half, though, I call it the negative side of election. This is where things hit the skids, okay? And we got to talk through this. Um, it's the other aspect. It's found in verse 12 through 18. Let me read it again. And she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Do you see the two troubling phrases in this passage? He hated Esau and he hardens whomever he wills. Now this is a subject matter that theologians would call the doctrine of reprobation. It's the flip side coin to election. So I know that I don't want to get too deep for you, but I want you to understand where this fits. Election simply says that apart from works and human effort, God chooses whom he will save. Got it? The counter is also true, that those he does not choose unto salvation are left to their fallen nature, and then, therefore, that's certain damnation that the scriptures talk about. That's the negative side of election. Now, hang in there with me, so I'm going to try to, uh, try to prove that point with what uh, Paul says here. But before we move on, let, let me just tell you that the scriptures overwhelm us with that truth, okay? And you probably don't see it. You probably gloss right over it when you read it, but let me give you a couple examples. Proverbs 16, verse 4, it says, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. John 12, verse 39 through 40, they, referring to the people of Jesus' day, could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn or I would heal them. John 17, Jesus prayed this in verse 12, while I was with them, he's talking about the disciples, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None of them have been lost except the one doomed to destruction so the scripture could be fulfilled. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, Peter says, Now to you who believe this stone, speaking of Jesus Christ, is precious. But to those who do not believe this stone, the builders rejected, has become the capstone. And the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. Jude 4, certain men whose condemnation was written about a long time ago have secretly slipped in among you. There's many, many more passages that talk about what God proactively does and doesn't do here. But no more clear teaching in all the scriptures than these two phrases we see here in Romans 9 of this idea, the other side of election. That God, when he chooses some unto salvation by mercy and grace, the alternative is also true. That left on their own, they go the way of disbelief and, and therefore damnation. So let me explain these two phrases so you can understand what Paul is not saying. Here's the first one. Esau hated 
Now, I don't know how you read this, but my guess is some of you read it like I would read it first blush. That hatred, I put myself in that context. I see how I hate through that word. And, and I, I told you last week that by nature, apart from the Spirit of God doing a lot of work in my life, I'm a hater. I, I also didn't tell you on the other side of me the best part, that I typically get involved with people innocently. I accept everyone until you cross me. That's when I'm a hater. Do you understand? People apply that same kind of logic to God and these words that describe how he feels and treats those he doesn't choose. In, in, in other words, it's a cause and effect kind of thing. You've done something stupid. You've done something regrettable. You've broken some serious thing God really cares about, and God gets really furiously angry at you, and off you go to his bad file, and he hates you. Like, he just can't stand you. And what confuses us is we look around and we go, everyone else is doing what I do. And they're claiming that he loves them. There's some inconsistency in this story somewhere, okay? Let me give you what theologians would say about this phrase. And I think it's very, very helpful. Instead of you thinking about God's hatred like you hate, think about it this way. Loving less. Loving less. Let me, let me define it. In other words, it's a comparison idea. So if I assume for one second something that's probably absolutely ridiculous, but let's pretend for a second that everyone in here is a Christian. Every one of you is a Christian. By that I mean you've recognized your sin, that you've got no hope apart from Christ. By faith you receive Jesus, you're covered by his righteous robes, and you are now as holy as you'll ever be because of Jesus. Amen. And your sins are forgiven. It will never be brought up again. You are his Christian. Okay, let's pretend we're all Christians in here for, for a moment. Well, if we tried to describe the love of God on behalf of us, how big is that mountain? How big is that mountain? And I'll, I'll tell you this, that mountain of how great God is is directly connected to how bad you are. If you don't see yourselves as the puke that you are, then God's great blessing and love and benevolence isn't that big. But if you see yourself, like the scriptures say of you, that you're twisted and dark and there's unbelievable things you can do, then the mountain of God's blessing just gets enormous. He is good and he is great and he is awesome and he's merciful and he's gracious to his people, right? In spite of what we deserve, in light of the wonderful beauty of God's blessing, he just looks at the person who he doesn't give that to. And the contrast to compare is so great, the only word to describe it would be hate. It's not that God is actively going, man, I'm just furious. It's in comparison to the mountain of his blessing. Do you see what I'm saying? Let me use a couple illustrations so you can really hone in on this. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 29, referring back to this guy, Jacob. Jacob was looking for a wife. And Jacob found himself at his uncle's place, Laban, and uh, Laban had a daughter, and her name was Rachel, and he was smitten. Like, oh my gosh, he was smitten. And he went to Laban and said, well, I want her. And he says, okay, work seven years, and you can have her. So he does. The text tells us that the seven years went by like that, like it wasn't even time. Uh, have you ever been that in love? Well, he was. Um, on his wedding night, Laban pulls a fast one. Instead of bringing Rachel, he brings the oldest sister, Leah, to Jacob. And Jacob wakes up in the morning and goes, what the heck happened here? This is not Rachel. He goes to Laban and says, this is not right. This is not fair. And he goes, well, in our culture, the oldest has to be married first. And he goes, well, how do I get Rachel? Seven more years. Like a prison term. 14 years to get married. And here's why. Because he loved her so much. 
And Genesis tells us the comparison contrasts to the mountain of love he has for Rachel. The only words they describe for how he feels about Leah is hatred. Now, he didn't hate her. He didn't actively wish her harm. He just, in comparison to how much he felt for Rachel, she came in second by a long margin. Do you understand? Let me use another one that's just really to the point. For those of us who call ourselves disciples of Christ, Jesus said this. He says, if anyone comes to him and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, was God, or was Christ suggesting that we hate our family to be his disciple? Do we act, actively be at war with them? No. He's just saying, when you love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you give everything to me, it will be as if you hated everything else. Like, you'd be willing to sacrifice everything for the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Do you see the difference? God is not actively hating anyone. He just loves to such a degree that the only thing outside of it would look like that or be described like that. He's talking about the comparison love. So here's what we need to understand. His blessing and his favor, his election of Jacob is so great that the rejection of Esau could be described that way. That's what it means. It's a holy hatred. It's not like mine. It's a holy rejection. It's not like mine, selfish and bent. It's just like it should be. Does that help? There, there's another phrase we've got to deal with, and that is that second phrase in verse 18, that, that God hardens whomever he wills. The example on Paul's mind here is Pharaoh. And just so we can get caught up, the, the illustration of Pharaoh is um, when God is rescuing his people who were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he brings 10 plagues on the, on the people, on Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians to kind of prove his point that you should, you should probably consider letting them go. Now, here's what we know. The text tells us that Pharaoh's heart was already hardened, that he hardened his own heart, that, that he would see the things that God would do and he wouldn't believe that it was God behind them and he would get his own magicians to kind of conjure the same similar things. He was just stubborn. He was just stubborn against God and perceiving God and giving God any credit for anything, okay? But almost right dead in the middle of those descriptions of the plagues and Pharaoh's response, responses to them, the, the terminology changes a little bit, and it, and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is, I think, how Paul is using this here in this, in this passage. So here's what I think is going on. I've never been in a position to experience God's weight like that, but I'm telling you what, if any river around me turned to blood, I'd be tapping out, like right now, right? I wouldn't need gnats or flies or frogs or livestock. I wouldn't need anything else to convince me there's a God in heaven, but somehow the stubborn heart of Pharaoh was so twisted, he wouldn't believe. And what a normal person would do, possibly after five plagues, is go, okay, okay, I give up. There's a God. But he didn't. Because what Pharaoh needed right then in that moment was divine, godly intervention. He needed belief. He needed perceptivity. And God didn't give it to him. Therefore, he allowed Pharaoh's self-hardened heart to just continue. Do you understand? It just kept going on. God didn't have to cause his hardened heart. He just didn't intervene with belief. Does it make sense? So if you're sitting here listening to this doctrine of election and you go, wait a minute, God hardens hearts? That's not fair to my kids, not fair to my wife, not fair to this person or that person. Here's what you cannot say. No one is lost because he's made to disbelieve. Everyone disbelieves unless God does some act of mercy on his behalf. That's what you've got to wrestle with. 
The Bible says true of every person. I don't care how nice your friends are or your family is. Everyone's at war with God. We need help. We need divine intervention. So how you doing? Got any questions? <laughs> Maybe a few. Well, I, I, you're in good company because Paul assumes there'd be questions. He asks and answers two of them right here in our text. We'll get to the second one next week, but let's deal with this first one in verse 14. Is there injustice in God? Good question, right? Wait a minute. If God's determining, if God is planning who he will save, that doesn't seem fair. doesn't seem fair. In order for that charge to stick, we'd have to say somehow that God was being unfair. And what would be unfair is if that God rejected anyone who didn't deserve it. That would be unfair, right? How many of you have been here through the whole Romans series? Okay, you should have this by now. It's almost as if people look at this passion and go, there's a line of people somewhere, and they're different than everybody else. They want Jesus and they want hope, and they want to worship, and, and they, they have understanding, and they're smart, and they care, and they're sincere. Just give them a shot. And some people look at this passage like God sees them, and he just says, no, no. You've just created a straw, a straw man argument. That person doesn't exist. Because here's what the scripture says. Every person who wants him can have him. Every person who will can have him. This isn't a discussion of what God will allow. This, this is a reality of what's in our hearts, right? L let me prove my point. Go back a few pages, Romans chapter 3. And, and, and if you want to argue with God, argue with this. Romans 3, look at verse 10, kind of in the middle of that verse. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What we just read there is kind of the essence of a, a doctrine called total depravity. Boyce describes it this way. It means that there's not a portion of our being that's not been ruined by sin. Sin pervades all of our actions and darkens all of our natural understanding with the result that rather than fleeing to God, who is our only reasonable object of worship and our only hope of blessing, we flee from God. How could a creature as depraved as that possibly come to God unless God should first set his saving choice upon him, regenerating him, and then calling him to faith? How could a sinner like that believe the gospel unless God should first determine that he or she believe it and then actually enable him to believe? Who's going to argue with this? I'll give you freedom right now. Stand up if you're the exception to this rule. Silly, right? I've never met a person in my life in 53 years of living that ever said, I'm the one that doesn't sin. I'm the one without the problem. I'm the one God's treating unfairly. He deserves me. I deserve him. The reality of it is, if you get Paul's argument from the very beginning of Romans to right now, this should be a no argument. The sin problem is so great, it's so deep, it has so twisted the human heart that we can't and we won't ever pursue God or the things of God. God has to do a work of life in us. And as soon as that happens, you perceive it like your decision, but God has conjured faith in your heart. Do you understand? Do you understand? That's the reality of this truth. Who could argue with this? You're not the exception. Our motives are twisted, not just our actions. Our hearts are dark. God's not unjust. Here's what Paul tells us he is. He's merciful and compassionate. That's what God is. 
the, the word compassion has this idea of um, recognizing the poor and helpless condition of a person and stooping low to help. That's what God does for us. The, the idea of mercy is that plus some. It, it's, it's not only shown to those who don't deserve it. In fact, it's shown to people who deserve just the opposite. We deserve the punishment of God because of a rebellion against him, and yet God doesn't give it to us. He gives us mercy. And God, who is the sovereign Lord of everything, reserves the right to show mercy to whoever he wants. And that's what Paul says. Amen? Amen? We are done, but I, I kind of wrestled with God this week of ways to kind of synthesize some things for you to think about. There are way, way too many different angles to come at to somehow um, satisfy everyone here. But let me give you a couple things to think about. Some would say to me, well, what about free will? God, uh, Tim, that sounds like uh, fatalistic to me. It sounds like uh, there's no decision on my part. And I would say to you, it depends on what you mean by free will. If you mean I can do whatever I want to do, yes, you have free will. But if you mean that you're free to choose God, I would say even then, yes, if you wanted to. The question is, do you want to? And here's what you've got to understand about sin. When it darkens the heart, at birth, we are born this way, right? The rudder is broken. The compass doesn't work anymore. It doesn't point towards God. We need somebody to fix the direction. Our want to is stuck on us in sin. And when God transforms the heart, it automatically gravitates to the king. Do you understand? It goes towards him. In fact, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. 1 Corinthians 2, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need Holy Spirit intervention. Every person does. A couple things, and then we're done. If this is hard for you, it's okay. It's hard for everybody. I walked into my first theology class, a systematic theology class with Dr. Smith in 1982. And he popped this cork like in the first week, okay? And I was angry. That's classically me. I can get upset about things I don't understand all the time, okay? And uh, I was furious. Then began a nine-year journey. And as soon as he opened that up to me, and even though I hated it, even though I thought it was wrong, even though I thought he was nuts, every time I read the Bible, uh-oh, there it is. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Maybe God will do that for you. Let me just remind you, too, that this, is, this truth is not what it means to be saved, meaning this. You don't have to confess a particular system of theology to be a Christian. You have to confess your sin, and Jesus has your solution, period. And then one other thing, and, I, and I've heard people say this, so I wrote it down. Your job is not to leave here today asking this question, am I elect? Excuse the terminology, but that's a stupid question to ask. Your job is to leave here asking one question. Will I believe? Because whoever comes to him, he will not turn away. You come with your sin. You come with your needs. You come with your brokenness. You just say, I am what I am. You don't have to fix it. You just come to him, and he runs to that person. He doesn't turn anybody away. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for this truth that your promises are, that we can count on them because of what you sovereignly have initiated and planned from the very beginning of time. You've poured out your love on your kids and nothing, nothing, nothing will stop it. 
God, every time we examine you, every time we try to get close to you, you get bigger and bigger and bigger, and I suppose that's the way it should be. We are nothing in comparison to you, God. We love you and we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.